Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Lindsay Gensel hanging out with you tonight. Esme Murphy is off, enjoying some much-deserved time off over the holidays. She got a puppy this week. Oh, my goodness. So cute. It's a German wire hair because they already have a German short hair. And I know she was taking suggestions for dog names. And there were some pretty terrible ones, of course. But I always think it's hard when you solicit advice like that because you're hopeful that someone gives you a really good one. And for the most part, it always ends up that that it's it's a terribly bad one. Has anyone ever gotten that piece of advice and been like, yes, that's the one? I've never heard of that happening. I've never heard of that happening either. In fact, I once solicited names for kittens that I was fostering. And I actually – Here's the thing. This is, and, and I know that I might be in the minority on this, but when it comes to animals, I want an animal to have a human's name. Like, I want to call, like, I want a cat named Chuck, or I want, like, our dog is Ada. I don't, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not a, we're not getting a fluffy or a cuddly or a pumpkin. That's just not happening. And I know I might, again, I might be in the minority. I like first, middle, and last names. Like, our dog is Ada Joe. It's not my last name because she's not technically my dog, but I call her Ada Joe. Her, that's her name. And then, you know, then like the nicknames come from that. So I call her JoJo and she answers. But of course, I mean, of course she answers. I'll, you know, I take naming foster cats pretty seriously. I did not, I I did not name the one that, oh, that we have with us right now, but his name is Wampus, like Kitty Wampus. And in all honesty, that's, why the woman who adopted him picked him because his name is Wampus. It's a good name, but it's not a person's name. Again, so I had nothing to do with it. So you looked at the cat like, I'm disappointed. I am so disappointed. Well, he does things that I am disappointed in. He has this uh, really fun habit where if you don't wake up when he wants you to wake up, he gets up on top of whatever high thing he can and he bats at the photo frames that are on the wall until you yell at him and then by that point, you're up because the pictures are all, you know, all over the place. I, I mean, I only have one cat. So this whole crazy cat lady persona that people are pushing here at the station about me. its I hear you laughing over there, Jonathan. No, you crack that mic. You tell me what you're thinking over there. You don't get to back away from this. All I can say is the last time that you worked this time of the night... You had what we affectionately now call the crazy cat people panel on this station. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I remember it squarely. I, I still need to uh, think up a an intro for that panel, that said panel. That was a good panel. Yes, we talked and, a lot about cats. Yes, There's a lot of cat lovers in here. There, there will be a lot of meows. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of uh, items in that. I was thinking about that today when I when I when you saw that, that I was you saw Lindsay's coming in. So we're going to talk cats. Yeah, was the this was the lo- this was the cat person panel? 
Well, it didn't start that way, but then once we got everyone together, we realized we all shared a love of cats. I was just thinking, like, all by myself for the <laughs> open. <laughs> a little Celine Dion. All by myself. Meow. <laughs> we'll go that's that route. Bad. That's not bad. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't quite what I was thinking, but that's a good addition. I like that. that. Is it is a good addition? No, I, I, I actually, I love animals. I'm a volunteer foster for Midwest Animal Rescue Services, and as you heard, may have heard last hour, my friend Lizzie, who was in, I kind of suckered her into fostering as well because she saw how much I enjoyed it. So she started fostering dogs, and anyway, it's a very slippery slope when you start opening your home up to cute animals that technically aren't yours because. The more the merrier. Anyway, so a couple of the things that we've been talking about all night is this idea of heading into 2018 and resolutions and being overwhelmed. And every time I talk about the Whole30 on air, I get a voicemail or I get an email or a text from a listener who wants more information because I think it is becoming to the point where a lot of people hear about it. You know, someone in your office is doing the Whole30 or a, a, a friend or a family member significant others looking into it and and really what it is 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 elimination diet so we're living in 2017 where it seems everyone has a food allergy whether they know it or not something that their uh, their body has a sensitivity to something that just doesn't sit well and so the whole 30 was developed to figure out what those sensitivities are now i've done 3 of them i think and there were a lot of things that I learned on the Whole30 that I still continue. Like as much as I love cheese, my body is not very happy with dairy. It's just not – it's not a, a, a situation that is fun for anyone. But so basically the, the rules of the Whole30, no dairy, no alcohol, no sugar, no processed foods, no legume, legumes – it can be a little overwhelming. So I'm hoping to take away some of that anxiety for people. We're going to talk about it with uh, a girlfriend of mine, Angela Norvich, who is one of the people that motivated me to try the Whole30 for the first time. And the reason that it's kind of in my head right now is that my boyfriend, who is one of the pickiest eaters I've ever met, actually suggested – that he would like to do one. Now, I don't know, and you both are laughing, but I don't know if it's that he actually wants to do it or if he just wants to make me happy. Brendan, do you have a, a thought on that? Yes, option B. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like one of those give a little, take a little moments. I did something for him. I cleaned. And then he came back and said, you know, I was thinking maybe we would try a whole 30. I think this is just a, a smart play down the road for him because if you're doing it and he's not, you're going to inevitably have those conflicts where you're not eating human food, but he is, which will annoy you because oh. you have to see him eating. Any Any time you live with someone, whether it's a roommate or a significant other, and you have different eating habits, like say, for instance, one of you likes to try and eat healthy and the other doesn't, there is always that moment where you come home and you're starving and that person is sitting on the couch with like their own Jack's pizza that they've added extra cheese to with ranch sauce on the side. I've had a plate of nachos straight up knocked out of my hand once by a hangry person. <laughs> hangry. Hangry. 
I, I feel like some of our listeners might not know what hangry is. Hangry is when you get hungry and you get angry and you become a hangry individual. And there are people who this is a problem with them daily. They have daily issues with being hangry. There might be some people in this building Monday through Friday who become hangry humans. Adam Carter, if you're listening, I'm looking at you. Adam Carter, of all people, actually, is one of the people that pushed me to do the first Whole30 because he was doing it and he loved it and he was all gung-ho about it. And so I tried it out. And so I'll just – I'll play this scenario for you. I'm about halfway through the Whole30 and I'm sitting in the newsroom and, of course, I packed all my lunches because it's so hard to find stuff that you can actually eat when you're out and about. Well – We get a call that something was happening out at Paisley Park and we didn't know what it was. So I just hopped in the car. I left all of my food here and I got there and realized, you know, Prince had passed away and I was going to be there for a long time. I didn't have my water bottle. I didn't have any of my food. I was out there from like 1030 until six o'clock, not only without food or water, but without a bathroom because we are standing in this field. I almost broke down. I was in a Walgreens using the restroom and I almost grabbed like eight Snicker bars and like a bag of Cheetos and I was just like, I'm done. But I didn't. I drove the station vehicle to a Chipotle. I got myself a Whole30 compliant meal and I went home and I went to bed because I had to be back here at 4 a.m. That is commitment. One day of hypoglycemia for you. Oh, I don't know what was worse, trying to get my phone charged out there, walking from station vehicle to station vehicle, praying that someone had an Android charger because apparently everyone in media has an iPhone, or the fact that I had no water or restrooms for about seven hours of my life. And if you know me and how much I drink water, it was a bad situation. Enough personal talk, though. Angela is going to join us next. We're going to talk Whole30. We're going to talk about how you can implement some of the plans into your life if it's something you've been thinking about. Radio.com. On this very cold Saturday night, of course, with New Year's just now hours away, the idea of a New Year's resolution comes up. And January 1st for a lot of people is a good motivator to start over, to look at things in a different way. And of course, we all know the gyms get busier. People are making weight loss goals. They're kind of jumping on board with the idea of being healthier. Now, a lot of people on January 1st are starting a whole 30. I'm actually starting it on January 2nd because I'm going to give myself that one day of, uh, gluttony in the new year before we jump right in. And one of the people who motivated me to try the Whole30 and has been such a fun follow on Instagram because she, like me, loves to experiment with Whole30 recipes is Angela Norvich. Again, someone that I met on the internet. (laughs) Tonight seems to be the night, Angela, where I just have people on that I meet on the internet. So like, basically, if you know me from the internet, I'll have you as a guest. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get into it because I know from my experience and you might be the same when you tell people about the Whole30, they cringe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So going through it, you do not consume added sugar, real or artificial. You do not consume alcohol in any form, not even for cooking. You do not eat grains. You do not eat legumes. You do not eat dairy. You do not consume, 
I can't pronounce that word, carginin, MSG, or sulfite. So basically any additives that be in processed foods. You cannot consume baked goods, junk foods, or treats with approved ingredients. And of course, you're not supposed to step on the scale at all or take any body measurements for the 30 days because it's not a diet. It's an elimination diet, and you're trying to figure out what works best with your body. So tell me about the first time you did the Whole30. I'm trying to think. I think it was about a year and a half ago. Um, Actually, yes, it was in April. And the first time I did it, I just wanted to give myself a challenge. I kind of thrive off of the challenge and really the black and white rules and just really wanted to get healthier and more intentional intentional about um, eating vegetables and just real wholesome foods that actually nourish my body. And it is... It's got a cult following. I mean, we we can't deny the fact that the Whole30 and paleo diets do have a cult following. But for the people who do them, I mean, for me, honestly, the first five days were terrible. I was an awful human to be around. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's pretty normal. I think a lot of people, um, well, they do have, um, Whole30 has kind of a day-by-day guide as to like what to expect. So I think that there's a little bit of like... um, there's some comfort in the misery of knowing what you're going to, what you're, what you are experiencing and what you will anticipate experiencing. So um, yeah, the first few days can be kind of rough, but once you get into it, you kind of get this, um, I don't know, you get more motivation behind you and just, you feel good. So you want to keep going. You do feel good. I mean, in all honesty, I'm not being paid to say this. And it, 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 the thing is, and I think people don't understand this is that, you don't have to buy anything except for food to do the Whole30. Everything is available right. on their website for free. You don't have to buy the book. You don't go out you don't and buy – membership. Yeah, you don't buy their, their products, anything. It is straight up you're eating real food. You're just cutting things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people say, well, that's got to be so expensive. And, um, and I will admit I think it is a little bit more expensive, but – I also found myself getting creative in um, how I was shopping, too, and just, you know, being a little bit more strategic about finding where things were a better price or buying things in bulk when I can when it made sense, too, or learning how to make things at home. Because, like, for example, mayo, the compliant mayo to buy that in the store is expensive. And then I um, learned that, oh, you can make it for really, really cheap at home. Yes, so we're talking. We're talking with Angela Norvich about the Whole Thirty. Neither of us are experts by any means, but we <laughs> both have done them and have found things that we've stuck with. So, after all your Whole Thirties, what are some of the habits that you continue to do? You know, I think for me, a lot of it that I was actually more surprised with was the takeaway was more the mental for me. Um, I think. Before doing the whole thirty, I don't realize I didn't realize how um, like dysfunctional my thoughts were around food, and just how like I would shame myself for eating certain things, or um, even though it's they'll say like whole thirty isn't meant to be three hundred sixty five days days a year, um, but more so just like giving yourself that room to eat those and be more intentional and more thoughtful about when you are eating them and how you are actually feeling. That was the biggest takeaway for me is now I'm like, I'll have a day, you know, around the holidays. Like I just, I, if I want to eat it, I'm going to eat it. And I don't feel any guilt or remorse around that. My body may not feel great after it, 
but I also feel empowered to know that I can just get right back on track whenever I want to. And, um, it can be the next meal. It can be the next day. It can be the next week, whatever I want to do. And, um, I think the other thing too, is just, I learned how to really cook and food prep and like meal plan. That was a great takeaway. Um, living alone, it, it can be easy to, um, do takeout or cut corners or just, I don't know. It's, it's, I think sometimes a little bit more challenging when you live alone, maybe on the flip side, a little bit easier too, because you can make what you want, but um, I don't mind eating leftovers. So for me, it was easy to just like cook once, maybe twice a week, make a big mess in the kitchen and not have to clean up the rest of the week. So um, that was a huge takeaway too. Yeah. There's so many sides of it. And what I think is really great for people who might be overwhelmed by it is how many resources there are online. There are so many incredibly well done blogs like for Whole30. And yeah, Angela and I both, you know, did it by ourselves when we were living alone. But there are people who have three kids and they do it on a budget and they show you how to shop. And man, the internet during the Whole30 is such a great place for you to be and in any lifestyle change that you're trying to make because there's always someone who's done it before you who's put out information on that. Definitely. And that was one of the things too that my first time doing it, there were so many recipes out there that I was actually surprised by it. And I never ate something that I made that I didn't like. I actually joked about how the one time um, I didn't like a, a meal that I had was actually when I was traveling out to, um, out to dinner and I had to kind of figure out what I could order off the menu that would be compliant. And I did not appreciate the meal at all, but everything I've ever made... I like in my own kitchen. And this is not to brag because I'm not like some crazy, amazing chef by any means, but like it is easier to um, prepare your own food. And yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for me after my first Whole30 was I was a fake sugar, sweetener, milk and cream in my coffee kind of person. Yeah. Obviously you can't have any of that. And the idea of drinking black coffee, I, I mean, it made me want to gag. I was not drinking coffee because I enjoyed the taste of it. Fast forward a year and a half, I am straight up black coffee or I'm a little bit of ghee in there, a little bit of coconut milk. I I don't recognize myself when it comes to that because I used to – I no lie, every order at Caribou would be a large coffee with a shot of sugar-free vanilla in there. And when you start paying attention to labels, it's kind of terrifying what's in some things. Yeah, totally. And that was – you know, that was one of the things that I had been a little bit conscious of before because I didn't jump into Whole30 like from zero to 100. I was kind of on a pre, we'll call it a pre-nutritious eating adventure before that where I had really started becoming aware of what was on my labels. But yeah, me too. The coffee thing, like I was definitely drinking it for more of the sugar <laughs> than than the coffee itself. I mean, I appreciated the coffee to an extent, but now I'm the same with you. Like I maybe will put a little bit of almond milk, but I can actually drink my coffee black now and never used to be that way. Who would have thunk? So right? I want to go, <laughs> I'm going to go over the timeline because I think the timeline is actually, it's, it's hilarious because like day one you get, you're like, I don't understand the big deal. Like I'm just going to eat this food. This is great. Yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> day two to three, they call the hangover because you're cutting out a lot of stuff that your body was relying on. And a lot of that is sugar. Day four to five is, might be my favorite because it's kill all the things. I mean, you have, <laughs> your, your body has crashed. You have no sugar. You're, you know, you've cut out all those like, 
processed carbs that your body was running on. Day six to seven, I just want a nap. Day eight to nine, for the love of gosling, my pants are tighter because it does happen. No lie. <laughs> Day eight and nine, all of a sudden you're like, I thought I was supposed to be eating healthier. My body was supposed to be getting smaller. What is going on? They say day 10 to 11, the hardest days. Days 12 to 15, you've got boundless energy. And then tiger blood. Now, tiger blood happens somewhere around days 16 to 27 where you're in a groove. And you think this is great. And everything is happening. And it's wonderful. And then at the end, you're like, oh, I don't need to finish the the whole 30 days. You know, like I made it this far. Mm Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. So people <laughs> like that have you... That far, have, you can't just not continue. I know. That's the issue. It is really addictive once you get the good feelings in your body. Mm-hmm. Have you and convinced even, anyone in your life to do one? Yeah, I've had a lot of people actually reach out to me just from them following me on social media or friends and family. Um, my mom and sister actually did it and really loved it. Um, I've had a lot, yeah, I can't, I have kind of lost track, but a lot of people have been very interested in it. So that's been cool too. All right. Well, I'm going to post some stuff uh, over on social media. If you're interested in looking at the whole 30, Angela, I appreciate your honesty. Are you doing one in January? Are you kind of mulling it over? I am. Yes. I'm actually going to start on January 1st, I'm planning to start. So I've already got my meal plan all kind of sketched out for the first week, and um, we'll go from there. I'm excited. Perfect. Post it on Instagram so I can see and steal it. I will. <laughs> it is nice when someone else does all the hard work for you. Yeah, it totally is. All right, Angela. appreciate <laughs> you coming on. Stay warm tonight. I'll be in touch. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we are going to check in with a reporter who was down in Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane Maria hit and what has happened because Friday marked 100 days since Hurricane Maria hit the island of Puerto Rico and still about half of the island is without electricity. We'll get to that next here on WCCO. WCCO Radio on a very cold night here in the Twin Cities. On Friday, it marked 100 days since Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico. And the headlines that were coming out Friday afternoon shocked me. Nearly half of the country still without power, many without water, many without daily necessities like food, medicine, adequate drinking water, a safe place to sleep. The things that we take for granted on a day where it's, you know, negative 30 here in the Twin Cities. And I I saw this from the Washington Post. And one of the writers behind it, Aurelius Hernandez, is joining me now. It was called Sin Luz, Life Without Power. And I want to say it's probably one of the most powerful multimedia reporting video stories I've ever seen. And, And you really don't understand the magnitude of it until you see it in real life. So it's actually up on our WCCO Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com slash WCCO radio, I've linked right to the article from the Washington Post. Now, Aurelius, I, I want to go back because I, I did a little digging and I know that you have a personal connection to Puerto Rico. So can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I, I am Puerto Rican. Uh, my family, I, I grew up here in the United States uh, in, in Washington, D.C. area, but my entire family is still in uh, in Puerto Rico. My mom and dad 
grew up there uh, and, and raised us over here, but uh, Puerto Rico is a special place for me personally. I love the island. Um, I grew up in sort of ensconced culturally and in its history, in the language. My parents were insistent in making sure that we grew up uh, speaking Spanish. So it's a big part of who I am. And I saw on your Facebook, you kind of apologize for being off the radar because you spent 30 days on the ground in Puerto Rico. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> what was it like for you to see a place that you love so much just devastated? Um, well, when I first, so, you know, for, for Puerto Ricans, especially if you're a second generation and you visited the island often, that, that first sort of plane dip into the island when you see the, the morro, these ruins that are um, there, and it, it's, it's always like a spectacular view. This time, when, I, when we first flew into Puerto Rico to see uh, you, the, the damage was visible from the air, right? and it was heartbreaking for me. You know, this is a place that's lush, that's green, that's full of life. And to see, you know, street trees stripped of all their vegetation, to see, um, you know, damage everywhere in terms of, like, toppled billboards and, and power lines all over the place, it was, it was incredibly heartbreaking for me personally. And what was the focus for you in those 30 days? Was it finding stories of survival, of what people are doing day to day? Was it all encompassing? You know, did you have a specific area you focused on? So um, I actually got there about a, a week after the storm hit. I was supposed to be there before, um, but I had a wedding to go to. So my colleague, Samantha Schmidt, was there, and she was doing a fantastic job doing sort of the survival stories in the immediate aftermath. By the time that I got there, uh, which was a struggle getting there in the first place, I mean, at that point, there were six flights going into San Juan every day. Um, our focus was, uh, I mean, the focus for me was accountability, right? Like, I had heard that there were some problems with getting aid to folks, food and water. I heard it from my own cousins who were struggling and had their houses damaged by, by Hurricane Maria. And so immediately, I, as soon as I touched the ground on the island, I went to the convention center, which served as sort of the government operations center, to try and get some answers from FEMA and from the territorial government as to what was going on. And it's interesting because obviously we saw what happened in Florida and in, and in Texas and what happened in the U.S. Virgin Islands, but nothing could really compare compare to what happened when Maria came through. And it seems to be there is a disconnect with the aid that was given to places that are in the continental U.S. and what's happening in Puerto Rico. No, absolutely. Um you know, I had heard from people on the ground, right? Yeah, you know, Irma was particularly devastating for uh, for a lot of the islands in the Caribbean. And it had only sort of swiped the north side of Puerto Rico. Uh, but Maria came. Maria just completely swallowed uh, Puerto Rico. And part of the issue or some of the excuses, I guess, or some of the explanations that we got from officials were that, you know, that it's an island. <laughs> it's a lot of work to get but, you know, logistically, all the supplies that they needed. Nevertheless, when you talk to people on the ground who could remember, like, Hugo and could remember George's and um, and the other hurricanes that had been pretty bad before, um, help got there within two weeks or within a week, and things were back to normal within two weeks. Uh, we couldn't understand, couldn't wrap our heads around the fact that, you know, here we are in our, I guess, our third major hurricane of the season for, for the, the continental U.S., and, you know, maybe there was storm fatigue. Maybe it was that they had spread, you know, so much of the resources throughout the Caribbean with Irma. It was difficult to understand what was taking so long. But obviously, right, the, the personnel wasn't there in the beginning. 
um, the number of helicopters, the number of troops, the number of, of ships that were in the area to be able to help. It just wasn't there. Aurelia Hernandez is our guest. She is a reporter for The Washington Post, one of the writers who was on the ground in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit. The work that they've done that they put together, Sin Luz, Life Without Power, it's a, a video document documentary. It's really beautifully done, and, and it opens with this quote, and it really stuck with me. It was uh, from a mayor from what I assume is a, a small community in Puerto Rico. You can mark our history as pre-Maria and post-Maria. And that just, my goodness, when you think of it that way, that an entire island, an entire community, that one storm is really the turning point. Right. And I think the, the timing of the storm, it, it needs to be also put in context, right? For the last year and a half or so, Puerto Rico has been dealing with um, its massive public debt, right? Um, the from the Promesa Law, which is sort of a fiscal oversight um, board that was convened uh, by the under President Obama to oversee sort of austerity measures and trying to get Puerto Rico back into a place where it is fiscally sound um, has had been, you know, the law of the land. And there was a mass exodus over the past 10 years or so. Their jobs were drying up. Industry was drying up in Puerto Rico. And so um, it was already in a bad place. And then for this storm, as big and as, as powerful as it, was, as it was to come, absolutely just like put Puerto Rico in a vice, um, it, its people, and, and, and put it in a sort of in an existential crisis to some degree. And, you know, people have to ask, is it worth staying on, you know, on this island that I love so much when I don't have a job, when uh, my government is, is seems to be falling apart, doesn't have control over what's going on on the island's future, and now I have this storm that's knocked out all my power. Like, what do I do here? Well, in the days after, you saw so much reporting in Miami from people from the island who were, you know, coming to the United States, and they were put in this incredibly difficult situation. You, you're forced to leave everything behind. You're coming to a country where, in some situations, there is a language barrier, but the United States wasn't prepared for all of those people, and all of a sudden, they're staying in motels for not a week, not two weeks, but months you know, I saw a report from CBS News of a, a family of five staying in a, you know, a, a small motel room with two queen beds. The kids got into school. One of the young women who was about 17 was debating whether she was going to reapply to colleges here in the United States because she, of course, had her, her future planned on the island. And I just, you know, in that moment, I don't think any of us, unless you're there and you were on the ground, can really understand the magnitude of deciding to pick up your entire life and start over. Well, it's a process for for so many people. For you know, for folks who have particularly small children right, and who don't want them to lose school. I mean, they they've got to make a set of decisions as to you know whether when to leave or when to go. For folks who can wait it out, who are going to try, you know, they have their home or their they have their job, they have their social circle, they have uh, maybe an, an older relative that they that they look out for. They were trying to, you know, wait it out and see how things were going to progress. And as the days went by now, you know, more than 100 days, that that question <laughs> becomes far more acute. And you wonder, is, you know, are things going to get well enough where I can, like, make a, a living here, where I can and make my life here, or is it time to just pack up and, and go? So you talked a little bit about the next steps for the the people of Puerto Rico, but what are the next steps moving forward with restoring power, with uh, restoring water? I read one report, you know, the 
the power, even if it comes back, it's not on for very long and it's not reliable. And there was one story about a family that their water came back on in the middle of the night, but the pressure was so intense that it blew out the the sink in the kitchen and they woke up to a flooded house. So there's steps being made, but it feels like every step forward, there's three steps back. Well, it's important for people to understand that, I mean, when we talk about, I mean, few storms were as devastating and as just, just impactful as Maria, right? And so infrastructure-wise, Puerto Rico's infrastructure was already pretty weak. It's not only its electrical grid, but its water systems. All of that, because of the mounting debt, there had not been investments in that public infrastructure, roads and whatnot. And so when Maria came, it just, everything buckled, right? Um, and so power for the first time, actually, on, I think it was on Friday, uh, the government reported how many clients actually have access to power grid before they were just telling us how much power they were generating. And still about half of the island does not have power that is coming from the grid. So, you know, most, a lot of people have generators, which you know, brings its own set of problems. Um, but, I mean, without power, it's so much more difficult, far more difficult than I even imagined to, to do daily tasks, to, 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 to get back to any place where it feels like normal again. I have some friends who were on um, in the Virgin Islands when Irma hit and lost their home and are in the process of trying to rebuild and are you know going through the difficulties of dealing with insurance and FEMA and it getting nowhere. But the thing that really struck me was the photos that they posted of all of the debris, the garbage, the things from their homes that had to be gutted and and taken away. And we can talk about the difficulty of getting things to the island, but at the same time, you've got to talk about the difficulty of getting things off of the island and, and the debris that's piling up. Right. That was one of the major issues at the beginning was finding truckers, right, to come and, and haul all this stuff away. And what individual towns were doing uh, was pulling up brigades and getting, you know, young men off the street who, who might have been unemployed or, or not employed at that time to form brigades and try to get this stuff off the street. I mean, not only uh, is the, I forget how many tons of debris, but I think they close to or are running out of space for, to, to, to put this stuff. Um, and then FEMA's in a process of reimbursing some of these uh, municipalities to, to haul this stuff away. But there's also an added risk where it, it, as this stuff lays out, I mean, we're talking about a tropical island where it rains almost every day. Um, things get moldy, uh, rats and pests, and there's been uh, an issue with something called leptospirosis, which is a bacteria that lives in the urine of animals that's been all over um, some, of, some of this debris. So, like, it, it's a health hazard to, to have this stuff sitting out there as well. Aurelius Hernandez, a really, really beautiful job on, on this piece. It's called Sin Loose, Life Without Power. It's on the Washington Post. We've got it up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WCCO Radio. I encourage you all to take the time to sit down and watch it. It's beautifully done, and it really, really paints a powerful picture of what's happening 100 days after Hurricane Maria hit the island of Puerto Rico. Aurelius, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It is 849. That is your McCarthy Auto World time check. Save up to $12,000 on new GMCs and up to $13,000 on new Buicks during the year-end closeout sale at McCarthy Auto World. So trying to get a guest here in the last couple of minutes. I've had so much fun hanging out with Esme Murphy tonight. 
are hanging out for Esme Murphy tonight, excuse me. Uh, just to recap, the 6 o'clock hour, we had Dr. Katherine Nelson from the University of Minnesota on. In the 7 o'clock hour, we did a fun panel. In the 8 o'clock hour, we talked Whole30, and we had uh, Angela Norvich on to talk Whole30. And I think right now we have our last guest of the evening, because I'm a terrible host and I gave Brendan the wrong number. Mark Newman is someone that I met back in 2012 working for Major League Baseball. And he has a book out uh, that is called Diamonds from the Dugout, 115 Baseball Legends Remember Their Greatest Hits. And now that the Twins are back on WCCO, I, I heard a rumor that the start of the book, Mark, has something to do with that team. It sure does. It's great to talk to you again. It's been a while, Lindsay. It has been a while. Um, yeah, I know that uh, Twins fans right now, December 30th, and the cold uh, are thinking baseball. <laughs> I hope they are. Uh, I, I, I think there are plenty of Minnesotans right now who would kill for it to be opening day. It's about uh, 15 below here right now, Mark, although I know it's not any warmer out where you are either. Well, uh, by the way, I'm a Vikings fan since since I was a boy, so... I've got some plans between now and spring training myself. Ah, I did not know that. I love that. Oh, yeah. My brother and I are going to – he's in San Diego. I'm in New York. We both agreed that the Twins go to the Super Bowl, especially hosting it. We're going to figure out a way to get there no matter what. (laughs) I'm a purple people eater fan at heart. I love it. I know I'm talking baseball, but I'm a Vikings fan. I love it. Well, Mark, let's talk a little bit about the book because 115 baseball legends remember their greatest hits. I've got to imagine there's some pretty good stories in there. Well, I had a lot of fun with this. I started at 2007 Hall of Fame induction weekend when Ripken and Gwen were uh, inducted. I sat down that Monday in the research library at Cooperstown and decided I wanted to write a book about hits. And during that course of that first year, um, Brooks Robinson, you know, I worked for MLB.com. You know, I'd written written a lot of stories from them. And when I'm in contact with uh, baseball legends, I... You know, I've come to ask them about their favorite hit, the one that meant the most. And Brooks uh, really started me off by telling me, um, what, you know, his first one because he'd, he'd come up, uh, um, come up quick through the system, the Orioles, hot shot, and uh, got a hit right away. And then thought he was, you know, really hot guy. And um, and then he went over twenty after that. So he learned a lesson, humility. So that kind of, I liked the lesson that came out of that. And I started asking that question to others like Mike Schmidt and uh, Ozzie Smith, other legends along the way. And so that's kind of how the book came about. So Diamonds from the Dugout um, has uh, taken off and it's uh, um, it's in every Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can find it in Twin Cities at Barnes & Nobles. Um, and it really uh, is also a journey of discovery that started for me back in age two at a Minnesota Twins home game. Really? Explain that. Um, my uncle, Johnny Goral, who managed the Twins in 81, um, he uh, played for them in the 60s. He's a utility infielder. Uh, a lot of uh, Twins fans will remember Gentleman John Mullion. Um, anyway, so I'm uh, I'm not old enough to remember the story, but I'm old enough to be able to pass along my mom's recollection of it. So I'm in July 20th, 1962, Bloomington, Minnesota. Um, we're there for uh, a summer series, and I'm sitting with Harmon Killebrew's uh, kids in the Twins' wives, uh, player wives section. And we're sitting next, also next to Jim Cott's uh, wife, as Jim Cott is making the start. And he was, uh, he was looking for his 20th, uh, about his 20th win in his career, a young guy, a young right-hander, and it's a slick field. 
Jim Cott throws a pitch to Bubba Morton of Detroit. Um, the ball skips uh, back to him, pops up over the webbing of his glove, and knocks his teeth, front teeth out. So that was the the teeth game for Jim Cott. And, and you uh, were there. And so that's how it all started. That's how my nose for news and baseball interest, you know, news stories all started at age two. And I'm just like blown away when I'm writing this book and my mom's telling me the story. And I'm like, I didn't know that. So we took a train there from Southern Indiana. And so Jim Cott um, uh, calls me during the uh, Cubs Indians World Series, uh, you know, a couple of years ago and uh, tells me the story about his own personal favorite hit. And it was, it was relevant to that because he came back and you can imagine this today. He comes back. He has his front teeth knocked out. Doesn't miss a start. His first all-star game is eight days later. He just doesn't smile for the team photo. That's the only blip Um, makes his every subsequent start. He goes like nine innings, 10 innings, 11 innings, 11 innings, 10 innings, 11 innings. Um, And guys today, they would be, you know how they'd be done for the season. Something like that happened. It would be ridiculous. So Jim Cott, then um, a couple weeks later, faces Robin Roberts. Jim Cott's looking for his 20th win at that point. Robin Roberts has about 250 under his belt and uh, pitches to Cott. He's expecting, uh, they're expecting him to bunt, and he hits a triple over the outfielder's head. And that one really meant a lot to him. So he really was able to tie in this first game that I was at at age two with his hit that meant the most. And so the whole book, as it came together, was kind of magical for me, and I was having a lot of fun doing it. It's kind of like a collection that I've put together and uh, people can see the collection now, Diamonds from the Dugout. I love it. Mark Newman, someone that I met, uh, as you said, Mark, you're a writer for MLB.com. So we met when we worked together in 2012 out in New York. Diamonds from the Dugout, 115 baseball legends remember their greatest hits. It's available in Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. We've got about 90 seconds left here, Mark, and I want to ask you because I know you get to meet cool people on a regular basis, but was there one person that you interviewed for the book that made you just a little star crazy? <laughs> oh boy. Um, it was really, uh, quite a while ago. It was, uh, sitting down with Stan Musial and Tony Gwynn for two hours talking baseball in the kitchen at Bush stadium next to the Cardinals dugout. I was at the sporting news, 1990, roughly 96. And uh, we literally two hours, all I had to do was turn on the tape recorder, me and John Rawlings, the editor then, and to hear Tony Gwynn and Stan Musial talk hitting and how they each anticipated. They were different the way they did it, but Tony is talking about how he would, he knew what a, he could see the pitch, you know, you see the spin of the ball and just the different um, thoughts that they, they played off each other. That's reflected in the book as well. And for me, I've been around a lot of uh, Hall of Famers. I vote for the Hall of Fame. Um, but I'd say to be sitting in the presence of Stan Musial and Tony Gwynn, listening to them talk hitting, nothing has ever been able to replace that in my life as far as uh, a, a thrill. I don't get awed by a lot of guys in sports, but that was one that I would like to have back again someday. That's awesome. I love it. I have some similar memories of my own from when I got to work with MLB, and it is. It's You're right. It's something that, that sticks with you. Sounds like the perfect lead-up to spring training, and of course, the Twins are back here on WCCO Radio. It's going to be an awesome start to the season come end of March, I think. I think we actually start in the end of March this year, which we is just crazy. We start March 29th with the first time in 50 years, a full docket of games, and it's the earliest start ever in Major League history, uh, excluding special international event. So it's going to be a really cool start to the year. Twins are coming back with a great 
uh, great team, and they've added some key parts with Rodney, and uh, they're going to be really exciting. I think anything's possible today in baseball. You never expected the Astros or the Cubs the year before or the Royals the year before. These teams that are winning, they don't repeat. They just come out of the blue, and a team that's built like the Twins could be next. You never know. All right, Mark, I appreciate it, and I love the boat of confidence. Uh, we are wrapping up here on WCCO Radio. I had a great time filling in for Esme this evening. And uh, I'll be back in studio on Monday. Mike Max filling in for Chad Hartman. Chad and Adam both will be back on Tuesday. We're getting the gang back together for some nonsense. And, of course, on Tuesdays, Jamie Yukis from CBS News always joins us. So that will start off on Tuesday at noon. Have a great start to 2000. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.